Hey, it's been a while. This is Michael, and you are listening to LibUX, the podcast about design and user experience for libraries and the higher ed web. I am joined here with Penelope Singer, who is a UI designer for a major library vendor, and we are just going to uh, chat. We're just going to talk shop today and do talk about like the business of doing what it is we do. So, um, hey, Penelope, what's going on? Hi, Michael. It's uh, pretty good today. Been busy. Yeah, like, you're up in New York, right? So it's cold. Uh, it's um, well, it's not cold for us, but it is cold for normal people. <laughs> so I alluded to that you are um, working for a major library vendor. Is that something you want to disclose, or we want to just keep it quiet? I don't think we need to talk about it. It's not important because I think the larger picture of uh, UI is not really, and UX in general is not not really dependent upon where you're working or what you're doing, but what you're doing. Yeah, totally. And we talked about this. You and I met um, a few weeks ago. And yeah, it, you know, like the, the discipline is the discipline, regardless of what industry you're in. You know, there's um, what what should people understand about the kind of day to day you're in? Basically, as a UI designer, um, I am putting together the interfaces that people work with in software. Um, but I tend to, as I do with a lot of things that I work on, go a little further than that and not just think about the interface, but I also really think very strongly about how the user is experiencing things. Um, for me, you can't really untie experience from anything else. Everything is imbued with with experience, and if you're not paying attention to that when you're designing an interface or a service point or any of these things, then you're you're missing something big and you're going to fail. So you have to know what the experience you want people to have is, and you have to know what the experience they want is in order to be able to give them that. And so, you know, when I design a user interface, I I not only think about how people get from one point to the other, but, you know, what's the fastest way for them to do it? What are the things that they don't care about? And maybe they don't need all of the time. And how do you get quickly from one point to the other keeping all of those sign points in in guide as you go so that you know you're going in the right direction and that you're not lost making this journey to your end destination and you never feel like what the hell am i doing in this can i say hell Um, but but what am i doing where am i going and you never say that you should never say that when you're walking through a workflow within an app and you really shouldn't even think of a workflow please but you know, we have all these fun jargony terms that we use when we talk about things. Well, you've pretty much described the entire library experience for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> um, I gave a talk uh, last um, at the end of last week in Austin, and um, at part of it, I kind of talked about this idea of uh, um, designing an interface that is uh, indescribably thin. This, you know, people don't care. I said that people don't really care that, for instance, your website is responsive, but they certainly care when it isn't, right? Like, they don't care about your design until the design gets in the way. Um, that especially, maybe, it's, it's hard for me to tell because I'm in an I'm, I'm in, in academic library that happens to have public f- services, but for the most part, from what I see from our users, you know, our patrons are very much uh, task-oriented. They're kind of like hit it and quit it. So they want to spend as little time as possible interacting with the library. And, you know, I think I think that may be true for the public library as well. If we design something that's 
relatively invisible that wow they they log in they get their thing and then they get out and maybe they don't experience the um the library brand maybe maybe they it just kind of breezes past them i think that's actually a marking for a really good and successful design well they're they're always going to encounter the brand whether they know it or not because the brand is nothing more than the personality it's nothing oh, sure. more of what the user says says you are. So if they have a bad experience or a good experience, that is their brand, whether they come in for five seconds or five minutes or five hours. So it's just what you were saying about how the design needs to get out of the way of the content. The content is important, but the design has to be well thought out, well laid out and unobtrusive without, without being nondescript. So your, your design has to be polished and clean and it has to be intuitive but also your information architecture has to be really tight it has to be very focused and you really have to know your users and how they think about the different things so for instance an academic library is going to have a very different information architecture than a public library is going to have because their users are inherently different um, you know, I worked almost 11 years um, at an academic library um, before I um, took my job now doing user interface design. And the stuff that I did there was, you know, I did some web stuff. I did a, the mobile website, um, some other web redesign. I did uh, publications. I did print catalog design and um, exhibit design. And the last thing that I did was wayfinding. Um, so we had new signs in the library. And I, I really liked doing signage, which is kind of a weird thing because I professed to hate it at the time. But the interesting thing about wayfinding and signs is it's very much about an interface. It's how the person experiences your library. They need these guide points to know they're going in the right direction. And so it, it was interesting because I was wrapping up that project when this other um, job came up and I was like, wow, it's so weird to think that these two things, seemingly very different things, but they are pretty much the same thing. It's just the experience. It's a, it's a physical versus a digital experience. And you just can't, you know, until you're in it, you can't see that. Um, at least not everyone can. Well, the average person doesn't think about it is what it is. Is the average person isn't, isn't saying, oh yeah, that makes perfect sense this uh that this idea that the experiences of the library website and the library as a physical space are distinct and kind of siloed from one another is um a myth or it has at least become a myth as people jump between their devices i think uh the most common pattern at least in e-commerce is that you know someone will start browsing on a phone and then move to a desktop and Maybe it'll sit in their cart for a while and then they'll pick it up in some other machine like at work or whatever. So um, wait one second. I'm sorry. My cats are my cats are about to have a big brawl. <laughs> There's nothing so library as cats. <laughs> uh, yes. And we have quite the number of cats. We have three cats. But oh, my gosh. Um, what what I was actually going to also say is um we can talk were, about cats too if you want yeah well i could talk all day about cats and <laughs> my i have a, a cat who is about a year and a half old and he is um he brings a whole other experience to the cat experience um he <laughs> he 
talk about if you wanted to plan for a user experience, you would not know how to plan for this cat. He's just into everything. I mean, he learned how to open the um, the cabinet door where the garbage is located. <laughs> First, he learned how to open it. So we um, put a baby lock on it. Yeah. Um, then he learned how to open the baby lock. So we had to then take the baby lock and move it to another place where he couldn't figure it out. And so that's held for about the last six months. Um, but it's probably not going to hold forever. So your cat is a millennial. Uh, my cat is, I don't know. My cat is crazy as anyone. He's also a bread thief, but anyone will tell you he's, he's just crazy. <laughs> um, and now I completely forgot what we were going to talk about. It doesn't really matter. Yeah. About something and, and I had a great tie in. And I think, I think maybe what it was is, oh, I know. So you were talking about the, how there's a bit of merge of the physical and the digital and how that's kind of become more and more seamless. And honestly, this is something that I've, I've never really understood is how people thought they were different in the first place. Because people's paradigms are always related to physical things because that's what we know. That's what we experience from the time we're born. And everything, and it's, I, I really try to think about this because when you can relate something to uh, something digital to something physical, people understand this concept. It's, it's why, you know, you know, the folder file kind of um, parad- uh, not paradigm, but um, construct um, of, of a computer makes sense because it's, you know, it's not on the, it's not in the hard drive that way. It's not like you're opening a drawer and there it is. It's all, you know, mingled and all over the sectors and whatnot, whatever they're using these days. Um, I'm showing my DOS roots, <laughs> but um, it's, it's not, they're not in neat little orderly packages in there. They're all mixed up, but you know, the interface said, Hey, you don't care about that here you go. This is your file. This is in this folder. And you don't need to know what happens in the back end. And the same thing goes for um, computers. So when you're programming something, that back end can be very messy as I've just, as I've found out that there's really things that you would never know programs have to do and how they talk to each other and, and where they pull this information from that in some, to someone who's never seen that, it's so messy. You're like, I don't even understand how this is, is possible because you don't know that. But then once it becomes the norm, it's like, oh, okay, yeah, I totally get it now. But, you know, someone who opens their, their hard drive and they say, here's my file. I put my file over here and it's just a single unit because the interface has been designed to bring that physical world paradigm to something we understand and to something that feels very simple. Here it is. It's one thing. This is your file. Not, well, it's got all these bytes and bits everywhere. And I think that really makes a difference. We saw this um, popularly with, um, what is it, like iOS 7, where Mm -hmm. it went totally flat. And then almost, um, you know, this set a brief design trend of uh, flat design, but almost within six months to a year, Google responded popularly with uh, material design, which was what flat in principle but skeuomorphic because with the same premise you know we know that when okay we click a link or we click an action we are pressing a button and we have this con we have this idea of what button pressing is and part of that is linked to the real world it's linked to the physical world when you push a button on uh you know uh your 
microwave or something, it beeps, it gives you some sort of feedback. Yeah. And that's, and I think the material design is, is really, is a really good, um, showing of an evolution of, we've got this really flat design, which honestly is, I hated flat design when it was so flat. <laughs> it's just like, well, I can, you know, take my, take my paper and cut it into little squares and here I've got a whole design, but it didn't have any depth or any real character. It, I mean, it could, but it very, very usually didn't. Right. And um, it was missing a lot of the feedback elements that I think are so crucial. And material design is nice because they put just enough in of that real world physical um, type of, I want to say bling, but it's not really bling because it's useful. Behavior? Um, yeah. It's not, it's not just the schemorphism. Yeah. Part of what they added was um, a very, actually a fairly rigid system of how um, animations have to work. Oh, so, yeah. It's very uh, rigid. Yeah, and, and now you kind of see this a lot, but I think the animation is important because the animation, the, the movement from one state to the other yeah. is important for communicating just that a state has changed, which is something that we really haven't had in the last few years, and at mm -hmm. least in web design trends. And so, you know, um, Google actually has a system that I'm fascinated with. Their Google developers have something called uh, Rail. And I kind of forget what the acronym is, but the idea is that, wow, all animation has to be 60 frames per second. Um, they have to, their animations have to be kind of like easing linear with a certain like transition, a specific transition state. And, and mm -hmm. the idea is that any faster and this would, uh, any faster or slower than it's no longer realistic enough. And our eyes are trained, mm -hmm. um, to detect that. Yeah. Um, so the, the whole animation thing is fascinating because I, I saw, so today was the F8 summit, um, the day we're recording this and maybe mm -hmm. the day that I'll be able to get this published and Facebook, released uh, Facebook Insta articles to all publishers who mm -hmm. are interested and meet all the requirements. Um, I'm kind of interested in this because I want to push some of the LibUX articles in there. But what I like about AMP and what I like about Facebook Insta articles is that when you follow a link while you're kind of like surfing through your newsfeed, um, the article just kind of comes in at a, at a very slight angle, but basically from the right to the left and left to the right. And um, this idea that you're moving from one to the other you're, you're you're switching from one content to the other but the i don't know how to express this but but the animation suggests that the content you were previously at isn't gone it's 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 it's, it's still there in the same way that the page you were just looking at mm -hmm. remains after you turn it and there's uh it sets a certain axiom a certain like set of anticipations that oh if i go back then i'm going to get back to exactly content, exactly where i was so and they're consistent um, about it and i think that's one of the that's one of the biggest things is that i i had um try i want i don't want to say trouble with but i i had um often met with resistance when you um are developing a style guide for either a company or you know um a client or whatever but the resistance to following guidelines to the letter because they feel like they can't be creative within those guidelines. But the guidelines are actually there to make it so that everything is consistent. So by, by really honing in and having this really tight set of guidelines, which feels extremely constraining to, mm. um, I kind of like those because they're a big challenge. What can I do? 
that's within the guidelines, but yet is still not in the guidelines. Um, you know, how can I push this? And I think that that's some of the most creative things come when you have these huge restraints because you, you can only expand in the ways that you're allowed. And once people recognize the value of adhering to those guidelines and seeing that consistency and how that consistency improves the experience, it lets people know that, that they can know what to expect and know that they can go from one place to the other and that there's, it's safe to go back because they know where they are and where they've been. And it's not hard to figure things out from there. You know, the, the user sees all of this as one, as all parts of a whole ecosystem so that any kind of rabid inconsistency that somehow totally violates whatever paradigms were set by <laughs> the previous pages or the previous kinds of content is, isn't an expression of creativity. It's a, it's disruption. It's uh it's, it's uncomfortable. It's kind of in your face. It's distracting. That's what it is. You yeah. know? Um, and that unfortunately, you know, the, the user isn't going to remember the five to 10 minutes of kind of uninterrupted, seamless browsing <laughs> that preceded that they're going to remember that that kind of spike of disruption absolutely and unfortunately that's going to just conflate entirely with the entire brand of the organization whatever the whatever the design on this little corner of your website is it's going to extend to your like to, to the actual people who are doing customer service who may have no even no relation to that piece of content to that page but it just you know there's only one reputation that a brand can have yeah. and any little bit of it will, you know, kind of discolor it. Well, here's, here's an interesting thing. And so, so you're starting to get into my, one of my favorite topics, which is the topic of, um, reality versus perception. And, um, people will argue lots of things that, um, that, you know, reality is, is based on how we experience it. And that, per and my personal take is that, that there is no such thing as reality because everyone perceives things differently and nobody can have the same perception because nobody has the exact same experiences. And so this actually makes designing experiences very difficult because everyone's different and everybody's reality is different, but yet there are some commonalities. And now I do have cats squabbling in the background. Um, but so there, so there are commonalities between people. So where do you think, so there, if there's no reality and there is only perception and people, people's brand or a company's brand is not what they say it is, but it's what other people say it is. Hmm. So your biggest goal is to control perception. So you want to control what people think about you. And the only way you can do that is to get inside their head, which sounds kind of creepy, but it's actually perfect because once you understand what's going on in their head, you can understand how to craft an experience that's meaningful to them and that they enjoy. So when you're, when you're actually you know, promoting your brand and putting it out there, you are in fact actually, hopefully, creating a good user experience because you want them to think specific things about you. And hopefully that's, you want them to think good things about you. So it's, it's funny because, you know, branding is, is often seen as a advertising and a manipulation type of thing. But at the same time though, if it's, if it's doing what you're intending it to, to do as a brand, and that is to put out there something that resonates with the customer or the user, and that is making them have a good experience, then that's good. That's, that's good. 
this is totally in um, my wheelhouse of interest, too. In <laughs> fact, the talk that I gave just a few days ago was on uh, anticipatory design about um, using that careful mixture of context, behavior, and personal data to craft a user experience for one to, you know, yeah. um, because, you know, the kind of like to roll back to the library websites. This is true for everything, though, but it's like the like patron A who lands on the homepage has a completely different set of tasks and the different needs and different ways of conceptualizing the library than the patrons, the subsequent ones. Mm -hmm. So if you have enough understanding of that individual, then is it not your, is, is not the best strategy to craft the entire experience around the needs, wants, the and behaviors of that individual. So, um, so what Penelope experiences is totally different from what Michael experiences, even though the source is the same. This is, you know, this scares a lot of people. So I was talking to <laughs> an auditorium full of librarians who have this track record of really locking down rigidly around uh, patron privacy. In fact, where mm -hmm. we have uh, often have the opportunity to track something like reading history, which I find super valuable, we will just, well, we uh, we li library landers will tend to just switch that off in the in the event that, you know, someone's going to serve a warrant and we won't be able to comply. Yeah. So so they're <laughs> so this is an industry that is on that end of the spectrum, but in fact, you know, like where in in a in a world where the most important metric, the most important factor to the success of a brand is the user experience, then you know, crafting the the most ideal one requires a little bit of this data and uh, and if not a lot of it. And so well, you're getting into the the fun, the fun of where the library has traditionally been, what their traditional roles have been, what they have been able to provide access to for people who haven't been able to have access. They've, they've been this kind of guardian of knowledge and information and also in freedom. And so, you know, they believe knowledge is free. It's why open access is so heavily um, pushed out there because, you know, the, libraries genuinely want people to get information and they want them to get the information they need and in the, in the way they need it. And the problem is there's a barrier because if you want to provide the best user experience and you want to be able to offer up things that a patron or a user might be interested in based on their other, you know, past, then you have to retain data. The problem then becomes, of course, you know, if you're retaining data, somebody can come and subpoena it from, from you. <laughs> and and libraries is wanting to say, well, we don't keep that, so we can tell our patrons with confidence, anything you do here is confidential because we're not going to remember anything. And and that is, and I can see both sides of things because, you know, honestly, sometimes I get a little irritated with Google because I'll do a search and Google will try to give me results that it thinks I want. And sometimes I want to just explore and I don't want Google to give me any information. It, it's kind of like Google takes the data it has around you 
And yes, you can do like incognito browsing and stuff like that, but you know, it's still amassing all this history. And then who, who remembers to do the incognito browsing anyway? Um, but, but you know, they're, they're curating links about what they think your interests are. Well, how do you, how do you explore other places if you're constantly be, being presented with what people think you want? So granted, there's a lot of stuff out there <laughs> and without some t type of curation, it, you know, it's, it's kind of like the, you know, 19 back to like 1997 where you just waded through geo cities and, and, you know, those type of sites where you couldn't find anything or ad sites, you know, when they were doing keyboard gaming and all sorts of, it was just junk. It was junk and it was hard to find things. And, and Google really improved on that. Um, and maybe for a little bit of a cost, but there's a big benefit to that. And, you know, the stuff they do, they're continually refining and making this and kind of being this kind of, kind of search that we should all live up to. And the, the problem is without retaining a ton of data, we can't do that. And so that becomes the, that goes back to perception and reality is that if a, if a user is inherently familiar with a go, how to Google search, how to find things in Google, which is we all know, <laughs> um, college kids uh, will say, well, I just, you know, I just Googled it. I found it on Wikipedia. <laughs> and every time I've heard that I groan um, because I just think, you know, I, I've done that too, but I always fact checked with like reliable sources because Wikipedia is Wikipedia. But if they know and they can find what they want using Google, doing the, the search type of type of searches that they do, um, then they come to expect that type of reliability from a library catalog and a library website. And if you can't provide that experience because you don't have that same data, you're not keeping the same kind of stats. It's you know predicting. You know, search search engines are are crazy. Um, we're working on a, a search for one of our products now. That's it's just. It's so complex, it makes my head hurt. <laughs> and I like complex things. <laughs> but, you know, without being able to give that to a user, they're seeing a subpar experience from what they know. And Google is what they know because that's what they're most exposed to. And so then there becomes the thing is, well, how do we improve that, that search? And so you have the perception that a user is now having that the library doesn't know what it's doing because they can't give me the results I want. So they, they have no clue what they're doing. They're not smart. Well, we all know when you go to librarians, they're very smart. They're very capable and they're very intelligent. And all you have to do is ask them something. And they're, you know, 100 times faster than Google. And they'll give you far more detailed information than Google will ever be able to give you. Even if you know how to use Google back and, backwards and forwards. But the perception is that because their first experience is with the search box on a library page or with somebody at say the information desk who is not a librarian and <clears throat> to those of people outside of libraries, yes, not everyone that works in a library is a librarian. <laughs> um, but you know, the perception is that they, that librarians and libraries have no idea. They have no relevance because they can't give me what I want. And that's very sad. And that's, I think, probably why I stayed at the university I worked at for so long, because um, I could see these amazing people doing great work and they were unable to really get, to get the respect they deserved because they were, had been underfunded. They had no uh, branding or communications budget, really. I mean, it was, it was really sad. Um, 
And so I kind of took it on as my mission in life uh, for, you know, over a decade to, to kind of really try to help, help that out um, with any little thing that I could do. And, and I like to think that I made a difference. We'd have to ask them to find out if they think I made a difference, but, but it, it's, it's important. And I think interfaces are the same way when you, when you're, and I go, go back to that because that's, you know, the big thing that I've been really heavily in for the last year is interfaces have to be there and they have to get out of the way and let you do your work. Just like, you know, a way for, you know, I used to make Word, Microsoft Word templates for people to put their handouts on. So they had all the styles set up. They could go in there, type it, and it just was consistent across the board and it looked polished and professional. And the same thing goes, but you know, it's, it was consistent so that everything that they put on it was brought to light so that you're not like looking at, you know, six colors of text in a, in a paragraph. And you're not looking at any of that. You're looking at, Oh, this is the resources that my, my librarian says are good to use this. These are the databases they recommend for searching on this subject that I'm working on. And so it, it removes all of the, Oh my God, this thing looks like terrible. I can't find anything I want to, uh, here's the content that I need. Now I can find things. And it lets them be seen as, you know, competent professionals, which I think is important. Interfaces too. Get out of my way. I just want to get my work done. I really don't care, you know, what doohickey does this. I just want to go from point A to point B and be done and get on with it. And I think we're going to leave it there. Um, Penelope, where can people uh, reach out to you and see all the cool stuff that you're doing? Oh, um, I'm available on lots of social media sites because, you know, everyone has too much time. Uh, on Twitter at um, Pushing Vision um, and Instagram at Pushing Vision. Although you'll see a lot of cat pictures of you on Instagram. Although if you like cat pictures, that's a great place to go. Um, Consider your audience. And yes, exactly. <laughs> um, and a number of other sites. If you, uh, if you Google Pushing Vision, you'll probably find me all over the place. Very cool. Thank you so much for uh, making the time. And uh, I hope to talk to you later. Absolutely. See you at another conference. <laughs> see ya. Bye.